RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. It's Shabam, sponsored in part by Google. So, in the last episode, Nadine, Owen, and Elliot made it to the Vandenberg Air Force Base, but not to safety. What is that? Standing between them and the actual base was a field of dead and dying zombies. Of course, a field of Zinskis. After some ingenious problem solving, the kids managed to signal the base using the only bit of Morse code you'll ever need. Look! It worked! No way! Okay, look human, everybody. And they got picked up by a helicopter and guys in hazmat suits. Those are those airtight, full-body, astronaut-looking suits that epidemiologists wear. We will come to you! And they got flown back to the base. And here's where we begin this episode. After going through a formal intake process and getting some food and water, the kids got the opportunity to sit around and wait some more. How much longer are we going to be in here? Four more hours. Mandatory five-hour quarantine for anyone who is brought onto the base from the outside. Remember... Quarantine is where you put people that look healthy, but might have been exposed to a pathogen. They stay in quarantine long enough to see if they begin to show signs of infection at a later time. Ridiculous! We just rode like a thousand miles on our bikes to get here. We are obviously not infected. Now, we know Nadine's not lying. We also know that they're probably not infected because we've been with the kids the whole time and have seen, or rather heard that they didn't get bitten or have any direct contact with a Zinsky. But from the military's perspective, they just picked up three kids from a field full of Zinskis who say they've been on their own for over a month. From their point of view, there's a high probability that these kids are infected. Blending an infected person into a tightly packed population of healthy people could be fatal for everyone. So it's critical that they follow a process to find out the truth. And that's precisely what this final episode is about. We're gonna end the season right where we began, with The Truth. The Truth. In the first episode, we talked about why you need to think scientifically to avoid So you stay focused on the truth. In this episode, we're looking at how you actually do that. What about mom and dad? Yeah, what about our parents? Have you found them yet? We're looking the kids for Gina, are also trying to find out the truth. What happened to their parents? We're still looking. If your parents are here, we'll find them. Don't worry. I wish people would stop saying that. It'll be okay, Nadine. How do you know, Owen? Hey, guys, question. Would you rather stay in quarantine for 12 more hours or use a straw to drink milk up your nose? I'd rather know where my dad is. Right now, the status of the kid's parents is an unknown. Hey, we made it this far. Obviously, this is stressful, though Elliot seems to be coping better than the others. We're alive. Don't forget that. But Nadine's reaction to not knowing what's going on is part of a deeper characteristic of our brains. I'd rather know where my dad is. Our brains are very uncomfortable not knowing stuff. I want to know what's down there. I want to know what's over there. We don't like the dark because we don't know what's there. I don't know how it ends. We don't like unfinished stories because we don't know what happens in the end. Not knowing stuff can be really stressful, especially when it affects us personally. Like during natural disasters when there are so many things that we don't know. Like, will I have a place to stay? Do I have food? Do I have water? Are the people that I love safe? When unknowns affect us personally, our brains say... I hate unknowns. I hate them so much, I just rather believe... Brain traps! And that's when we fall into brain traps and start making stuff up. What we need to do is figure out a way to sort out these unknowns correctly so we get to the truth. What we need is to think 
Say it with me. Scientifically. Scientifically. Oh, wow. One more time. Scientifically. One more time. Scientifically. You guys are terrible. Why are we incapable of saying things at the same time? If you remember from episode four, our communication systems allow information to spread all over the world incredibly fast, which is great because research about diseases can get from one country to another in seconds. This makes science and the knowledge that comes from it more accessible to more people. But it also means that information that isn't true or misinformation can spread all over the place too. Like fake news stories, fake pictures and videos, hoaxes, people lying about who they are or what they've done or what they know. And the fake stuff is meant to look like the real stuff, so you let it into your thinking. And that's when misinformation can spread to other people, kind of like a virus. To protect ourselves from getting infected by this misinformation, we need a process that separates fact from fiction. Think about how the Vandenberg medical staff deal with new arrivals. To separate the healthy people from the infected people, and to protect from infection, they need to make sure that people aren't carrying viruses on the outside of their bodies or on the inside of their bodies. So the process they go through has three simple steps. Step one, remove and throw away your clothes. Step two, take a disinfecting shower that takes care of all the stuff on the outside. Step three, wait in quarantine for four hours. If by the end of this process they haven't turned into a Zinsky, then they're not infected. The base stays protected from infection because every time there's a new arrival, they go through the same steps. Clothes, shower, quarantine. Think about your brain as a safe zone that you want to keep protected from infection. And every piece of information you get is like a new arrival, and you have to separate fact from fiction, no matter how real or crazy things sound. The vampiric chupacabra, of course Loch Ness, various bat demons in Zanzibar. That's Benjamin Radford. Uh, Crystal skulls. I've occasionally referred to myself as a scientific paranormal investigator. A folklorist. He spent a good part of his life scientifically investigating all sorts of unconventional claims, from weird animal sightings to medical mysteries. Basically, I try to approach so-called unexplained or mysterious phenomena using a scientific process. He investigates the truth behind weird unknowns. And this fascination started when he was a kid. When I was a teenager, I was fascinated by the weird things in the world. So I would go to a, a local bookstore and I would plunk down you know, my allowance money, a couple bucks, and I would buy these used books on UFOs and Bermuda Triangle and monsters and weird things like that. But after a while, I realized that there wasn't any real investigation. I'm not seeing any research. I'm just seeing people repeating stories. Ben realized that to actually figure out what's true and what's not, you have to change the way that you think about new information. So he became a skeptic and started doing the research himself. And you might be thinking, what's a skeptic? A lot of times the, the public doesn't really know what a skeptic is. They think that a skeptic is a debunker or somebody who doubts everything. Mm, I don't know about that. And of course, that's not true. A skeptic is basically a person that asks for evidence. It's, it's sort of a, a science-based approach to all sorts of claims. Believe me. Political claims, advertising claims, paranormal claims, science claims. Anytime someone wants you to believe me, believe something, you should ask, believe me. Why? Why why should I believe that? Believe me, believe me, believe me. I believe you. So you've come across an article or a video, a commercial, a book, even a friend telling you something, or maybe a news report. How do you answer the question, why should I believe this? Believe me. Well, we have the solution. We're proposing a simple three-step process that will help you figure out what's true and what's not which will help you choose what to believe and what not to believe. But before we take those steps, we have to change the way that we think. 
And to do that, we need a tool. We're going to bust out a thinking tool, which we call our mental truth probability meter. The probability meter works like this. Instead of thinking about the world in binary, where things are either true or not true, start thinking of things as being on a continuum, where really, really probable is on one end, and really, really not probable or improbable is on the other end. It also means you have to stop using the word impossible. But that's impossible. A true scientist will never rule out something and say, that's impossible, that can't be true, because we don't know. We're still learning about the world. Remember, Tim, our neuroscientist from the last episode? I'm a scientist, so nothing's impossible. The closest he came to saying impossible was this. It's a very, very low probability of occurring. You can think like this too by switching on your probability meter. Now you may be thinking to yourself, that's great guys, but how do I actually use this in real life when I'm talking to my friends? Well, you're basically creating a new habit. So when anyone tells you something like X... Instead of saying, is X possible, the question is, is X probable? You're thinking in probabilities. And this is how scientists think because it's useful for adjusting one's thinking based on new information. If new information comes up, the probability can shift either towards less likely or more likely. Now you're thinking, great, but show me an example. I bet you don't have an example. There's actually a great example of this in episode seven. Right, fine. It's the Jamestown starving time story that our historian of American history, Joyce Chaplin, was talking about. If you remember, in the winter of 1609, the Jamestown colonists ran out of food and became so desperate that they had no choice but to dig up dead corpses out of graves and to eat them. Which is crazy, right? It's totally disgusting and sounds highly unlikely. Even to historians, it sounded unlikely. Here's Joyce Chaplin. There were arguments among historians about whether we should believe this or not. Was this propaganda? Propaganda is basically misinformation used to make people believe a certain point of view. Or were these really true accounts of what went on? Because up until now, all you had was some old documents that told the story. And then some new information came along. Archaeologists found the remains of a woman that had been dug up and partially eaten. And there you are. <laughs> the documentary record had said something, and science had indicated that that document trail was true. Or more probably true. Thinking in probabilities is also useful because we don't like to think that we're wrong. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. We don't like to realize that we're wrong. Which is, of course, silly, because realizing you're wrong is how we learn what's right. But it still feels bad. When using probabilities, it feels better to change your mind because instead of having to flip from one position to another, True. I believe it. False. I don't believe it. You're just adjusting your probability, leaving it open for it to go back. So, thinking in probabilities helps you think like a scientist because it allows you to easily adjust for new information, and two, it doesn't feel as bad when you change your mind. Phew. Okay, before we do our steps, let's take a little break. Hey, Gerald. Hey, Alan. I know something no one in the office knows. Mm. Hold on. What's that? Cheryl stole all the computers from the supply room. Really? When? Last week. Why do you think she did it? Who knows? Maybe she's going to put them on eBay or no, something. No, why do you think it was her who took them and not somebody else? Well, two weeks ago, she stopped coming to work. Then last week, the computers disappeared. Cheryl went on vacation to France two weeks ago. She's not in the country right now. She probably faked her family vacation. With her wife and kids? They're probably in on it. The whole family Bye, is decided that they're going to work while you're walking away. Don't walk away. You know it's true. 
Okay, we're back. Before the break, we talked about thinking in probabilities so you can adjust your probability of truth based on new information. Now we're going to introduce a simple three-step process to handle incoming information so you can separate things that are probably true and probably not true. The three steps to figuring out the truth about things. And it goes like this. Step one, analyze the source. Step two, analyze the information. Step three, triangulate. Now, what does that mean? Let's explore these steps in a little more detail. Step one, analyze the source. source. Step one is to analyze the source. The first question to ask of any information you get is, where is this information coming from? In other words, who is the source of this information? The credibility of a source determines the credibility of the information. So what you want to figure out is, can I trust this source? If you think about the most trustworthy person to get information from, that would be someone who A, is not lying, B, is not stuck in a brain trap, in other words, someone who thinks scientifically about the claims they are making, and C, someone who knows what they're talking about, meaning someone who knows lots of stuff about that thing you just heard. So where does that leave us? The most reliable source, then, is the premier expert. This person knows everything there is to know about the subject you're interested in. Who is perfectly honest. Never told a lie. And completely unbiased. Completely objective in every single situation. Always. And that doesn't exist. Because we're all human. And we all have biases. A bias is when someone leans a certain way for a reason that has nothing to do with any particular claim. Think of it like a magnet that is constantly pulling on your probability meter skewing the results. So an honest, unbiased expert, they don't exist. But the closer you can get to that, the better the source is. And that should raise your probability meter. It's not always easy to find this out, so here's a couple tips. One, avoid liars. Liar! Well, liar's probably not gonna be honest. Duh. Okay. Liar! Two, be aware of your own bias. For example, let's say for some reason you think people with glasses and British accents are more trustworthy. You have a bias. So when you hear, I'm not a doctor, but I've come up with the cure for the flu. Your probability meter should go down, but it doesn't because your bias magnet is pushing your probability meter up a little bit. And whenever you encounter a Brit with bad eyesight, your bias magnet is pushing up no matter what that person says. So pay attention to your own biases and be aware of them in other people. And three, look for people who have put in the time to become experts because learning things takes time. And if they put in the time, they probably know what they're talking about. The problem is that you can't really tell by looking at someone whether they've spent the time to learn stuff. So some good questions to keep in mind are. Do they have a PhD? Are they medical doctors? Are they recognized in the field? Have they passed exams? That doesn't guarantee that they're the best in the field. It doesn't guarantee that you might not get bad information from them, but it does suggest that they probably are much more likely to be a recognized expert and give good advice and information than the average person. So the closer to an unbiased, honest expert your source is, the more your probability meter should go up. Now, before we go to step two, we're gonna take a little break. Gerald, man, how's it hanging? Hey, Brian. Boy, do I have some news for you, dude. Mm, okay, hold on. <laughs> Okay. okay, what's the news? You know, flesh-eating bacteria? Yeah? Yeah, well, it comes from Mars, man. They just proved it. Okay, and this time, who's the source? My brother's friend knows a guy who's an astronaut or something. How do you know he's an astronaut? That's what my brother said. So you heard all this from your brother? No, Scott's sister overheard him talking on the phone. Bye, Brian. No, it's true. 
Bye. Okay, so we've analyzed the source, seeing how close we can get to an unbiased, honest expert. Now it's time for step two, analyze the information. The next step is to analyze the information itself. What is the source telling you? If someone is making a claim, they should present evidence to back up that claim. Otherwise, there's no reason to believe them. The tricky thing is, there's all different types of evidence and they're not all equally strong. So they shouldn't all pull on your probability meter the same amount. To make it easier, we've sifted these into three buckets, starting with the weakest, going to the strongest. And then we'll explain why. Okay, here they are. Anecdotal evidence, physical evidence, experimental evidence. Okay, now explain the differences. One, anecdotal evidence is someone's personal experience. So something that they heard or something that they saw. Two, physical evidence or stuff you can see or handle, like blood samples from infected people or a photograph or a video like the one Nadine and Elliot were watching when the outbreak was just starting. Oh my God! And lastly, there's three, experimental evidence or the results of a test. An example would be the outcome of a medical trial or the results of a crash test. That's why information that comes from an experiment is called experimental evidence. These names are so complicated. Okay, but why are they ranked like this? Well, anecdotal evidence is called that because it relies on anecdotes. An anecdote is a short story about somebody's personal experience. So anecdotal evidence is basically stuff people say they experienced. It's no wonder that this is the weakest form of evidence because it relies on people's brains. And your brain is the thing telling you what you're experiencing. Believe me. The truth behind what actually happened to somebody can be very different than what their brains think happened to them. This is the big problem with anecdotal evidence. It relies on our brains, which, if we've learned anything from episode one, are not always good at figuring out the truth. If this is the only evidence you have, just know that the brain is in there messing with how we experience reality. That's not how I remember it. So, stuff people told you they experienced? Pretty weak evidence. It might nudge your probability meter a little, but for some big movement, we need stronger evidence. Next, physical evidence. So actual samples or photographs, video, anything that other people can share and look at is stronger than one person's personal experience because now there is a record of that experience that other people can analyze for themselves. The personal journal of George Percy talking about eating corpses is anecdotal evidence that the Jamestown colonists were desperate and starving back in 1609. But since he's been dead for over 400 years, we can't talk to George and find out if he's a liar or an exaggerator or a meticulous, honest note-taker. All we have are the words his brain came up with. Nothing was spared to maintain life. But the skeleton of an actual corpse that shows signs consistent with cutting up a dead body, that's physical evidence that doesn't rely on George's brain at all. Physical evidence is pretty strong, but it still needs to be analyzed because it can be faked, which we'll get to in part two. The strongest form of evidence is experimental evidence because you're showing the results of a test. So anybody can replicate it if they have the same materials. For example, during an epidemic, doctors at the CDC would need to find out exactly how a virus is transmitted. Now, we know the Knox virus is not airborne and spread only through biting because we wrote it like that. But doctors would have to figure it out for themselves. They may have an idea that it's biting based on their personal experience, 
but they can't rely on anecdotal evidence because people's lives are at stake. They need the strongest possible evidence, and that's experimental evidence. So how could you show it's not airborne with an experiment? You could do it this way. Take two rats, one's infected and one's healthy. And first you separate them so that they can't bite each other, but they're breathing the same air. If the healthy rat stays healthy, then airborne spread is really unlikely. Now you do the experiment again. You let the zombie rat bite the healthy rat. If that healthy rat now turns into a zombie rat, you know that the virus is spread by biting. And here's why this form of evidence is so strong. If the claim is true, then anyone, anywhere, can do the same experiment and get the same result. So whether you're in Japan or in India or in China or Germany and you take two rats, a cage and some zombie viruses and you do the same experiment, you'll see the same thing happen. There's no interpreting of photographs or figuring out if someone is lying or biased. If it's true, it just works. And that's why science relies on experimentation as much as possible to investigate how the world works. Okay, we've analyzed the source, meaning who is giving us the information. We've analyzed the information, meaning what are they saying? What's the evidence? And before we do our final step, we're going to take a little break. Welcome back to Is It Sasquatch? The game show that requires a little bit of critical thinking. And by that, I mean the bare minimum. Let's meet our contestant. Darius, who's originally from London, now runs a small business in Pacoima. Hello. Lou, from Brooklyn. How you doing? Lives at home with his mom. Hey, save me money. Cheryl is from Topeka. Hello. Works in healthcare and is an Irish robot. I'm very excited to be Fantastic. First question. Your best friend was hiking last week and said she saw a Sasquatch. Which she is said, Sasquatch? No. <laughs> really? It's a large, hairy mountain man with big feet. It's a Bigfoot. Oh. Okay, she's got no other evidence. How strong is this evidence? Lou. Well, she saw it, so very strong. No, Darius. All my friends tell the truth, so very strong. No, Cheryl. Weak. Correct. Why? Because it's anecdotal evidence, and even my best friend could be mistaken. Correct again. Right. Double point. She said she saw it. That's right. Next question. Now, your friend has some hair that she got from the same place. What type of evidence is this? Luke. All the evidence I need. Nope. Darius? Hairy evidence. Nice try. Sure. Physical evidence? Correct. I knew that. And is this physical evidence strong enough to prove that the Sasquatch exists? Yeah. Wrong. Absolutely. Wrong. No. Correct. Oh, come on. What do you mean? It's physical hair. We don't know what kind of hair it is. Correct. But your best friend said it was Sasquatch hair. I mean, well, if it's not Sasquatch, then what could it be? A bear? Excellent. Next question. What kind of evidence would be stronger than one strand of hair? Various. More Sasquatch stories? Lou. More hair. What? Cheryl? Maybe an experiment to test whether the DNA of the hair matches known animals? What? That's right, some sort of experimental evidence. What? This is ridiculous. Congratulations, you make it to the final round, Cheryl. Where did that yes. come from? The last question, the final question, is one question. I'm ready. Based on this evidence, is it Sasquatch? Probably not. Oh, come on. Oh, well done. Ah. Well done. This game show's not really that fun. You know, my best friend said never trust a robot. I'm sorry to hear that. Missing the point. Okay, we've analyzed the source. Who's telling you? We've analyzed the information. What are they telling you? Now, step three, triangulate. Triangulate. What does that mean? It's got something to do with triangles. Mm, kind of. It has to do with the number three. If you remember back in episode four, we talked about cell phone towers that relay our cell phone messages back to a central hub. Well, 
cellular service providers can actually locate a cell phone based on the signals received by these towers. So if you want to find out the true location of a cell phone, you can actually do it using cell phone tower information. But you can't just use one cell phone tower. You have to triangulate, which means using at least three cell phone towers. Analyzing a cell phone signal can tell you how far away that phone is from a cell tower. One cell tower gives you many possible places. Now let's say there's another cell tower, which determines the signal is coming from a different distance away. Where these two distances meet up is still a pretty big area. By adding information from a third tower, we can see where all of those points intersect. This will narrow things down a lot, and we should be able to figure out the true location of the cell phone. This is called triangulation, and it's a concept that's also applied to information. When you see a story that looks real and has nudged your probability meter into the probably true zone, the next step is to use triangulation to look for other independent sources that make the same claim. So, if there's a news report, Health officials think they've identified the source of the infection. 25-year-old Kevin Sharp, who died last month, if other independent news sources are reporting the same information... ...at the CDC believe that the 25-year-old hiker is the source of the infection... officials at the CDC, Kevin Sharp, a 25-year-old ...then the probability of it being true goes up. The trick is to make sure that the other sources are actually independent, meaning they aren't just quoting each other, but have verified their information on their own. Is there a major epidemic sweeping... If three news articles come from the same online magazine, those are not independent sources. When things like disasters happen, there are always many sources of information. There are news feeds pushing articles from all different news sources. And of course, there are many random people who take to YouTube or blogs with all kinds of theories about what is going on. By using these three steps, you can reduce your chance of getting tricked by misinformation. All right, we're about to wrap up part one. In part two, we're going to take our probability meter and our truth-finding steps and show you how to apply them to a crazy-sounding real-world example. There have been similar type of uh, flying humanoids seen by hundreds if not thousands of people. But before we do that, it's time to check in with the kids who have been waiting not so patiently in quarantine. Beep, beep, beep. How long has it been? Five hours and 17 minutes. 18 minutes. Good news. Mom, you're here! Oh my god! <laughs> Elliot! Right. Nadine! Hey, Mr. Walker, I miss Mr. Come Walker. Come both of you give me a hug. Oh, whoa, what happened to your leg? Your mother and I got in a car accident! We did. Yeah. So did we! Elliot was driving. <laughs> Elliot! About that, Dad, it kind of drove the car through the garage door, and then I crashed it. What? That's awesome! What? You're not mad? No, you're here, Nadine's here. I don't care about anything Dad, else. Dad, we saw a VW van just like the one you yeah, bought. Yeah, it was really weird. It's the same color, make, model, everything. It even smelled oh weird. Oh my god, it was big old fluffy? <laughs> I think it was. That's what we said. <laughs> hey, where's my dad? Have you guys seen him? Oh, Nadine, honey, they're still looking for your dad. Oh, okay. Hey, hey, listen, listen. I there are so many other military bases around. I mean, I bet he's probably at Pendleton. That's right. Yeah. Honey, I'm sure he's fine. I know he is, and I promise we will find him no matter what, okay? Okay. If you want to find out the truth about Nadine's dad, you're going to have to listen to part two. I'm just saying. Hey, Shamamas, here's another quick zombie tip. 
figuring out what's probably true and what's probably not true is a crucial skill to have these days. It's especially important anytime anyone tells you facts about zombies, which is why we made this song to help remind you how to do that. Step one, check the who, who's the origination? Two, check the what, what's the information? Step three, check who else, triangulation? Then reassess, probability, is it more or less? And of course, we need your support so we can keep making songs and talking to experts. So tell them how they can do that. Patreon.com slash shabam where you can get gold. Nope, no gold. You don't get it. You get the cool stuff, but we're asking for the money. Got it. Also, iTunes where you can subscribe, review, like. What is it? Subscribe, review, like. Bing, bang, boom. Nailed it. Ow. Also, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Yep. Which you can find on the website. That's right. Uh, shabamshow.com. Perfect. Is there any more of the song? Shabam. 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 Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network